It is my prayer and my heart's desire and the labor of my life to instill in the soul of this assembly a biblically-based theistic worldview. Now that word, worldview, is somewhat difficult, I guess. It's somewhat awkward, but I think it's useful. By worldview, we mean how we interpret life. The grid by which we filter every experience, our perspective, our belief system. Christian pastors can choose to dedicate the hours of their days to any number of tasks serving any number of ends. But without apology and without hesitation, it's my purpose and life quest to lift up before you God in all of his majesty and splendor. To commend to you a worldview which sees the supremacy of God in all things. By proclaiming the sanctifying truth of Scripture to help you see time and again that God is a source of all that is good and the sovereign ruler of all that happens. And to see in Jesus the only true rest and lasting joy for our souls. Now in the big scheme of things, such a perspective is a narrow road with very few travelers. There is in the heart of natural man an anxiety which longs to discover purpose and meaning to understand the world in which he lives. But as Romans 1 tells us, man refuses to understand himself in relationship to his Creator. Man naturally suppresses the truth of God and refuses to glorify Him as God. Yet it is impossible to know ourselves until we know the Creator who defines us. Without a God-centered understanding of ourselves and our world, our lives are destined for futility and confusion, and our souls are destined to roam about in restless, troubled unhappiness. How easy it is for that chaotic, troubled state of soul to plague God's people as we are influenced by a humanistic culture which desperately tries to define humanity with no necessary connection to the Creator. I wonder this morning how operable, how effectual is your biblical worldview. I invite you to walk that narrow path with me today as we consider from the second chapter of Genesis that our identity and our existence as human beings is bound up with and defined by our Creator. We have looked at chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. We find in there a chronological account of the creation. In chapter 2 and verse 4, you'll notice in your text, we find the next major division of Genesis. It reads, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. We've already read that in chapter 1 and verse 1. But as we come then to chapter 2, 4 through 25, we have another section dealing with creation. But it, this section assumes the general account of chapter 1, and it builds upon it. It narrows in on the sixth creative day. So we've dealt with chapter 1 through 7 in a broad sense. We're coming now to day 6 and narrowing in on man. Now we have to remember as we read Genesis 2, there's no sin. This is a pristine world. What we find here is God's original design for humanity. And what God clearly reveals is that He is to be conceived as the very center of all that we do and all that we are. Without this perspective, life loses meaning. 
And without this worldview, our souls fly around in a restless, chaotic state. God is to be conceived as the very center of all that we do and are. It's not a new theme for this church or our consideration. But think of it again, under the ministry of the Spirit, as the truth of God is given to us here in Scripture. Think of it again. We find, first of all, in this passage from chapter 2, verse 4 and following, that God is the giver of human life. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came, and we'll talk about this later, but I believe that's really mists, mists came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I believe that verses 4 through 6, if you go back to 4, verses 4 through 6 prepare us for the defining statement of verse 7. Verse 4 starts out with the account of the heavens and the earth. I think that's preparing us for verse 7, because all of chapter 2, chapter 2 is based upon and focused upon man himself and the creation of mankind. This word account in verse 4 is uh, the, the Hebrew word toledoth, and that's an important phrase because it's found 11 times through Genesis, and remembering that they did not have underlining and outlining and that kind of thing in the original text back before, at this time, that hadn't been invented yet. And so they just wrote every letter right next to the last letter. No space is nothing. These Toledoth statements, as they're found throughout Genesis, are the outlining of the book. We have here the second main point of the book of Genesis. When we read that word, this is the account, or the King James has it, the generations. Now, as we find it in the other 11 instances throughout the book of Genesis, it's usually translated, this is the story of so-and-so, or these are the descendants of so-and-so, depending on the context. Now, we need to note that every time this phrase is used in Genesis, it introduces a father and his progeny. Never does it introduce details about how one was father. What does that mean here? These are the generations, these are the descendants, we could translate it, of the heavens and the earth. In other words, this is not an account telling us of how the heavens and the earth got here. This is an account telling us about the children of earth. Now, it looks at the creation of man in a very different way. But it's not a re repetition of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We come to Genesis 2.4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No, that's not it. These are the descendants of the earth. These are the descendants of the heaven and the earth. I'm telling you about that which is generated by earth, namely, verse 7, man. Genesis 2 is then through and through a chapter about mankind. We notice there in verse 4 one other point, and that is the use of the phrase, Lord God. In chapter 1, we read, God did this, God created this, God this and God that. But we come to chapter 2, and we find a different word is added, the Lord God. The word Lord, the Hebrew Yahweh, is a term of intimacy. 
And we find that God is, in fact, very intimate with man in this chapter. Verse 5 then speaks of no shrubbery of the field had yet appeared in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. In chapter 1, God covered the earth with vegetation on day 3. Here we are on day 6. But the text says there are no plants and no shrubs. How do we reconcile that? We must understand that the words translated plant and shrub in chapter 2 are different Hebrew words than we find in chapter 1. So we find there's vegetation on day 3 in chapter 1. We come here to day 6 in chapter 2 and we find there's no plants, no shrubs. They're different words, they're different Hebrew words. That's important to note. And you also notice there in verse 5, that phrase, of the field. It's called now the plant of the field and the shrub of the field. And again, a different Hebrew word is used then as translated ground and earth in chapter 1. The point is this. The vegetation mentioned here in chapter 2 and verse 5 demands cultivation. That's the kind of plant that there wasn't yet. It's in seed form in the earth, but it hasn't come up. So are we to picture the earth as a barren just earth with nothing on it? No. Plants, trees, grass covers the earth. But the kind of plants that need cultivation are still in the ground. So there's trees and there's plants and there's grass to beautify the earth. But things like corn and tomatoes and probably some types of flowering bushes and flowers are still ungerminated. They've not sprouted up yet. Why is that? Verse 5 says, For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. Well, let me say right up front that that phrase, there was no rain on the ground, doesn't really have a whole lot to do with anything as far as the growth of plants. We'll get to that in a moment. But the main point here is there's no cultivator. We see then here immediately that God envisions a joint effort between himself and mankind. God is not going to cultivate the fields. And man is not going to make it rain. But together, God and man will labor to make the earth productive. We remember, of course, that with the water canopy, the atmospheric conditions then present on earth would not allow for there to be rain. So why does he mention the fact that there's no rain? The plants have not grown up because there's no rain. The point uh, is not a matter that the plants needed rain because for generations plants would grow. Cultivatable plants would grow without rain. I think that his point here is what we would call foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing of the flood. There's no rain yet. There's going to be rain. There's going to be rain because the earth that has not brought up vegetation yet that needs to be cultivated doesn't have any weeds either and it doesn't have any cultivator. No man, no weeds, no rain is the point. But verse 6 cautions us that we shouldn't understand this to mean that the earth is a barren wasteland. Streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I think that better reading of the Hebrew is mist. Apparently, temperature fluctuations between daytime and nighttime created a heavy dew or fog which adequately watered the earth. So what we should picture is lush vegetation with the seeds of the cultivatable, edible-type plants in the ground, unsprouted, 
waiting the cultivator's touch and eventually the creator's reign. And then the creator gets down on his knees, as it were, and begins to work in the dirt. We read in verse 7, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 7 goes back to what? Verse 7 goes back to verse 4. In the beginning, there was no man to work the ground. Now let me explain what's in the ground. There's plants that are not yet sprouted. We come then back to verse 7, goes back to verse 4. Let's now talk about the cultivator. Let's talk about the farmer. Let's talk about man. We see here in verse 4, this could be a sermon in itself, but we see first of all the Creator. There is intimacy here with the translation Lord. Again, Yahweh. The Lord formed. That Hebrew word commonly is used in reference to a potter. In no other creative act does God show this level of care and attention. Like a potter, he is forming in the dirt the body of Adam. So there is between God and man a unique relationship that is developing. We see then the creature, man. The Lord God formed the man. The Hebrew word is Adam or Adam. Here, probably in the generic sense, uh, in English, Adam's name is man. Uh, or maybe you've heard from time to time someone named Manly. I guess that's kind of the equivalent of the Hebrew man. Adam is a Hebrew word. It means man. God creates man. We see then thirdly the creative material. He creates man from the dust of the ground. Just like the dust to which we return, our bodies are made of nitrogen and oxygen and calcium. And there is here a play on words, because this word, this Hebrew word for ground, is Adama. Adam, coming from Adama, Adam with an H at the end. We come from the earth. There's no other way to say it, and God is making that very clear. In the English, we might say something like God created an earthling from the earth. He created Adam from the Adama. The phrase in the field, which is actually the word Shadeh, God had planted seeds. Now from the ground, Adama, a different word, God creates a cultivator for those seeds. And so then we see the actual creative act. The creator, the creature, the creative material, and now the creative act at the end of verse 7. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. In chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, we read God deliberating. He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. That's the general statement. That's the will of God. We come to chapter 2 and verse 7 and we see the work of God. And what an incredible work it was. It is beyond our imagination to build a sandcastle that can even hold up for very long. And God makes out of the dirt our bodies. It's been calculated that for scientists to crudely simulate the three-pound brain of a human being would cost in dollars, two with ten zeros after it. 
whatever that is. I mean, that's a project Bill Gates couldn't fund. And it's just impossible. Even the United States government doesn't raise that many taxes to simulate one human brain. It's estimated that there are approximately one million billion, that's 10 with 15 zeros, one million billion connections in the human brain alone. Little three-pound brain. To illustrate that, it is said that if we took all of the communication connections on the face of planet Earth, we would have to multiply that figure 100 times to equal the communication connections in the brain. With all of his technological prowess, modern man could not even pretend to simulate these intricate connections into a workable system. But God did it with dirt. There on the earth lies a form. It has a skeletal structure. It has a muscular structure. It has a cardiovascular system. It has lungs and the like, brain and eyes. But for all its creative genius, there lies a pile of dirt. And then, as it were, God bends down toward that pile of dirt. And he breathes into the nostrils of Adam, and he sits up. There's life. I don't know how we could understand that exactly. But maybe there is, though, an imperfect illustration, some illustration, in watching a baby born. To me, when our boys were born, I was sure they were all dead. There's just something lifeless about that form. Now, we know it's not, and that's where the illustration breaks down. It's not lifeless. It's not just dirt. But it just isn't alive. It's just a thing. It's not, I know, but it just looks like it. And then what happens? There's that breath of air, and all of a sudden, it's alive. It's a human being. We know it as that, and I know it is at conception. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. This isn't a discussion about abortion. But it just, it just isn't life there. Or on the other end of the scale, what happens when we die? Have you ever watched someone die? The breath comes further and further apart. Then there's that last breath, that last exhale, and something changes. It's dead. That body is dead. That picture that we see in life and death is built into the creative order by God himself. He takes that lifeless form on the dirt and he breathes his air into that man, and he became a living being. The word that's translated breath here applies in the Scriptures only to God and only to man. Animals breathe, but not this kind of breath. This is the breath of God. As we breathe, of course it's oxygen, and we understand all of that and the other elements, but what we are breathing, though it is air, is in a unique sense the life of God. We learn about ourselves then that God made us as a twofold aspect. And I really believe that would clean up a whole lot of the problems with the psychological model of man if we would just remember that. We are made of body and spirit. Man is body, made out of dust, plus spirit, God's breath, and that equals a living being. Both in body and in spirit then, we relate to God who gives us our life we also learn that we did not evolve into our present form. Man was non-existent until God breathed into his nostrils. 
I guess if we could say hypothetically somebody was running along the beach or wherever it was, they could have run over that pile of dirt and cremated it. There's no life there. It's just dirt until God breathes his life in. For all of their digging and research, anthropologists and paleontologists have yet to find fossil evidence of any link between man and lower life forms. Now, a number of finds have been proposed, but as time passes, scientists refute the evidence. Even evolutionary scientists refute the evidence. There's no link. Think of the intricacies just of the human brain that I've described. How long would it take to evolve? Couldn't, of course, but how long would it take if it did? And where are all the in-between stages? They're not there. As the Bible makes so very clear, man owes his physical and spiritual life to a direct act of God. It means then that our life is entirely bound up in our God, our Creator. And again, that's, to, that's, the, that's the point, that's the theme to which we must come every day of our lives. The life that I breathe is God's life. I'm a spirit being made in His image. If I don't relate to Him, I don't have a life. He raised us up out of the dirt to rule over and to subdue His creation. This is our dignity. Yet remember where we've come from. From the dirt. What makes us unique is not that we are purely human. What makes us unique is that we carry and live out the life of God Himself. In a physical sense, we owe every breath to Him. In a spiritual sense, we have the ability and the privilege to relate to Him as spiritual beings unlike any other life form. God is the giver of human life. We notice, secondly, that God is the initiator of human civilization. God gives life, but He does not... But He is not only the center of our being, He is the engineer of what we do on this earth. He provides, in verse 8, a habitat for man. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there He put the man He had formed. The word Eden, we understand, means delight or pleasure. He places this garden in Eden. Now, as time develops, as the Scriptures develop, it will talk about the garden of Eden. But at this place, Eden is a place, and the garden is a place within the place of Eden. We notice that it is God who places man in the garden. God creates man's habitat. And quite a habitat it is. As verse 9 goes on to say, the Lord God made all the kinds of the trees, made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's hard to imagine the beauty of this garden, but we do understand here that it was a place of sensate pleasure. We notice that there are two trees singled out. The tree of life, and we won't take time to understand it carefully, but as we search it through Scripture, I think it is at least possible that the tree of life would give immortality to Adam if it was consistently eaten. Maybe something like we eat food now. Uh, food keeps us alive, but you've got to keep eating it. And it's very possible that this tree of life would have kept Adam alive forever had he kept eating it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil we will look at later in the text. We notice here that there are two trees. In verse 10, there are four rivers. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. 
Through the garden, the idea is, flowed a large river which branched out into four separate rivers outside the garden. So the habitat of humanity, kind of sounds like an organization, doesn't it? <laughs> the habitat, the place where man lived, there was the, the main river on earth, and it broke into four tributaries outside of the garden. Flowed, I think is better, flowed out of, giving us the idea of some artesian well. Now remember, there's no rainfall at this time. So these rivers are not supplied by rainwater from higher elevations making its way back down to the sea. Since there's no rainfall, these rivers uh, are not supplied by rainwater. It is suggested then by some that there may have been a heat source in the Earth's core, as their course is, that would have pressurized a subterranean lake that was supplied by a subterranean channel to the sea. And with this pressure up as an artesian well, this water would have sprung up in the Garden of Eden and then flowed through it. Well, that's a little bit of conjecture, but it's very possible. Whatever the case, it is interesting that in the heavenly city described in the book of Revelation, what do we have flowing from the throne of God? A water like an artesian well right from God's throne, there is a river that flows through the city of God. What we have here is paradise. It's a paradise that will be lost. It's a paradise to which we are going. These four rivers are now named in verse 11. The name of the first was Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where, the, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The word aromatic resin, or it's translated bdellium, uh, is, is really an unknown um, gem, as is onyx. We're not really sure what these stones were to the, to the people who originally read this. But at any rate, Havilah is a well-known area for precious metals. It's interesting that these precious stones are not found in the garden, but outside the garden. Chew on that for a while. There's a lot in it. But at this point, there's no need for precious metals. Verse 13 goes on. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. Uh, commentators have tried to identify this with Nile, with the Nile River, some with the Kerka River, but, uh, and Cush. They've tried to link with Egypt. But remember, there was a universal flood. So the exact location of the ge geographical points that are here cannot really be identified. Um, verse 14 names the fourth, third and fourth. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. The fourth river is the Euphrates. These rivers are readily identifiable to us today. And we may assume that they are near the general location of the original rivers, or maybe they just reminded Noah of the original rivers. I don't think it would be really wise for us to say it's the same river, because there was a universal flood which would have rearranged the face of the globe significantly. But these place names do evidence to us that Eden was in southern Mesopotamia, somehow identified with this area, and many of the uh, ancient texts uh, biblical and non-biblical, identify this as the birthplace of man. I know as I, I studied ancient Mesopotamian history, uh, one course at the university, and an un unbelieving professor also said this is where civilization started. There seems to be uh, evidence of that, and uh, there's evidence of it in the name places that are given here. Somewhere in modern-day Iraq, 
Um, that's always an interesting thought to me. <laughs> that that's where we started and this is where we've come. <laughs> but um, that is where, uh, where Adam's habitat was. So God is the initiator of civilization, providing a habitat, but secondly, a commission within that habitat. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Verse 15 harkens back then to verse 8. The Lord God put Adam in the garden. Now verses 9 and following, we have this, this supplementary information about the rivers and what the garden was like. Now we come back to verse 15, and he goes, let's go back to that idea. He says, let's go back to that idea. Adam has been put into the Garden of Eden. But in verse 15b, the second part of the verse, we see that God not only provides man's habitat, but issues a commission for life in that habitat. Before we look at that commission, it's essential that we understand the Hebrew word translated put. This made my hair stand up when I read this. This Hebrew word, put, is usually translated to cause to rest. You see it from last week, the seventh day is the day of rest. God rests, he doesn't create anything, and thereby points man to himself as the source of his rest. And it is said here, if we'd understand the Hebrew, that he takes Adam and rests him in the Garden of Eden. In other words, this garden was a place where man, created on day six, would commune with God who rested on day seven. There was to be a fellowship within this garden. This fellowship would be realized as man fulfilled the commission that God gave him for life in the Garden of Eden. And what was that commission? The end of verse 15, to work it and to keep it. To work it is the word we often translate serve. To serve in the garden and to keep it. That word means to watch over, to preserve, to, to have charge over. So the service man was to render to the earth was not one of obeisance, was not one of manipulation, but, but it was one of watchful stewardship. God placed us here to subdue and rule over the earth to his honor and his glory. And I can look at each one of you here and it comes to mind as I see your faces of what you do and how your work fulfills the subjugation of the world, bringing some aspect of our world under control. Now, of course, our jobs are small. They're just, intimate, they're just little parts of the big picture, but they do fulfill that role. God placed us here to subdue and to rule over the earth to his glory and honor. Now, we need to understand that God did not deposit Adam in the garden and then abandon him. Is that the idea you get? Here's the garden of Eden, Adam. Have fun. I'm leaving. Not at all. The garden of Eden was to serve as the training ground for Adam. God blesses him and says, subdue the earth. Let's start here in Eden. There's this beautiful garden. There are seeds planted in the ground. You don't see them yet. They're going to sprout up, and I'm going to teach you to cultivate those seeds for food. And there's fruit all around. And there is beauty that needs to be nurtured here and developed. We're going to work on that together. So God says to Adam, I teach you how to subdue the Garden of Eden, and you teach your children how to subdue the earth. It means that God is the final teacher of how civilization is to work and how we are to work in civilization. Civilization, the life of mankind in this, on this planet, is to be a walk with God. 
what in the world does God have to do with my job? That, I think, is what most people would say in this world. God has nothing to do with my work. There's God. He's on church day, maybe. Maybe when I read the Bible at home, but what does he have to do with my life and my job and my work? He has everything to do with it. Our world and the way we subject it is to be a walk with God. And on the topic of work, let me ask you this. If you could live any life you chose, what life would you choose? I would pretty much have a hunch. There's nobody here who would say, I would work every week for a paycheck. <laughs> we would, we'd like to be independently wealthy, but would your idea of life be free of work? If you could choose any life you wanted, would it be free from work? May I suggest that if your idea of real living is a world of vacations and play only, you do not understand human happiness and you're very frustrated. There's a place for play. There's a place for vacation. But there is a place for work. Work is not a result of the fall. You might think sometimes your job is a result of the fall, but it's not. Work is not a result of the fall. It was an integral element in our creation intended for human pleasure. As Hamilton puts it, Eden certainly is not a paradise in which man passes his time in idyllic, uninterrupted bliss with absolutely no demands on his daily schedule. I don't see Adam in the Garden of Eden on a lounge chair with a drink in his hand, sunning himself. We see him working. We see him bringing the beauty of the garden out as he interprets what God has already created. When we work for no other reason than to pay bills, to retire, or for some ulterior motive, we fail to honor our Creator and we are probably quite unhappy. When we shirk our duties and avoid work at all costs, we fail to understand who we are. God created us to work. And the truly happy human being is the one who finds joy in his work, not merely because he likes his job, but, but, but because he likes to work. In my thinking, there's way too much talk about job satisfaction and not nearly enough talk about the satisfaction of work. We've been created to labor as God's representatives, subduing the world around us to God's glory and honor. And I hope that you begin and continue to see your life in those terms. As we look at our homes, as we look at our yards, as we look at the church building and the property here, as we look at our jobs, as we look at our ministries, as we look at what we do with people, all of it should be seen as part of subduing the earth, bringing it under control, organizing it and keeping it clean and improving it and making it better to the glory of our Creator. Subdue it with excellence through work. God is the giver of human life and God is the initiator of human civilization. Thirdly, I will summarize and go as quickly as I can. Follow with me. God is the arbitrator of human ethics. He gives us life. He is the initiator of civilization. He is the arbitrator of human ethics. He determines what is right and wrong for us. Notice verse 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. God commanded. He asserts his right as the creator to give binding direction to his creatures. You are free to eat. That obscures the intensive construction of the Hebrew, which is actually eating you may eat. Eat. Go for it. It's for you, all of it. I give you an abundant invitation to help yourself to the fruit that is here before you on day six and to all those plants that you will cultivate in the days to come. Eat it, have at it. With one single prohibition. Just one. Verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. There again is the Hebrew intensive construction. Dying, you will die. Do you see it? Verse 16, abundant provision. Eating, you may eat. Verse 17, solitary prohibition. Dying, you will die. What was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What was wrong with it? I think I got it figured out this week, finally, what this tree was and what kind of fruit it was. You know, it's always pictured as the apple. I just realized that it's actually the olive tree. <laughs> I hate olives. <laughs> it had to be an olive tree. Not olives aren't so bad. It's the thing they do when they get them green and put the red stuff in them. And that I have a problem with as my family eats them like candy around me, and I cringe. It had to be an olive tree. I don't know what it was. Seriously, I don't really think that it matters. I don't think there was anything personally, it's just an opinion, but I really don't think there's anything about the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing wrong with it. I don't think it was poisonous fruit. I don't think it was some kind of weird-looking thing. I think it just was fruit on a tree that God said no. It'd be my opinion that he could have chosen any tree he wanted to and said that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me explain why I think that as we go through. As we study this phrase, good and evil, in the Old Testament, it is often used in contexts where a moral judgment must be made. So you remember when the Israelites are thrown out of the promised land, God says you're not going in because of disbelief. In Deuteronomy 1 and verse 39, He says your children are going to come back into this land. Your children who right now don't know the difference between good and evil. What does He mean? They're not of the age where they can make moral decisions for which they are accountable. They, If they violate the moral law code, they are not judged they're not responsible to pay the penalty of the justice system. They don't know the difference between good and evil. And that's just one example. But there are many other ways in which the phrase is used of those who are making moral judgments. In this context, summarizing quite a bit, but I think in this context then, the knowledge of good and evil is the exercise of moral autonomy. In other words, if man ate of this tree, he would thereby judge for himself what was right and what was wrong. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he would have to eat it by crossing over the law of God. God said, don't do it. If he did it, he would be determining for himself. He would become his own moral judge of what is right and wrong. So by denying man the fruit... 
God forbids him to decide for himself what he can do and what he cannot do. When man arbitrates his own moral guidelines, he usurps the role of the creator. And so God says, on the day that you do that, dying you will die. On the day that you do it. Now the meaning of that phrase can be missed on us as English readers. Adam will not drop dead physically before it hits midnight. That's not what the phrase means. On the day you eat, dying you will die. The Hebrew phrase is used idiomatically. The meaning is something like, your fate is sealed. On the day you eat it, your fate is sealed. You you are absolutely going to die. Not in that 24-hour period, but your fate is sealed. The emphasis of the phrase is not on chronology, but on the certainty of the event. If he chose to decide for himself what was right and what was wrong, Adam would be immediately separated from fellowship with God, resulting in spiritual death, and the seeds of physical death would be sown in his body. So the point of it is, when it comes to what is right and what is wrong, when it comes to human ethics, God alone is our arbitrator. God alone decides. Now listen to the Second Humanist Manifesto and speaking for the broader culture to some degree. As non is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Do you see it? We like what Adam did. With such a philosophy, our culture sees life in terms of weekends and paychecks and entertainment and escapism. And with such a philosophy, mankind continues to experience the pain of a disoriented soul which has not come to find its rest in the Creator. Christian, hear me again. The meaning and source of The essence of our being is grounded in God. He gives us our life. He defines our civilization, our habitat, and what we are to do. And He is the arbitrator of all human ethics. He decides for us what is right and what is wrong. May the rest of your life be a quest to better realize these truths and a quest to better practice them. The end result is joy as we rest in God, our Creator. Now that might all seem obvious to us, that God is the source of our life, the initiator of civilization, and the arbitrator of human ethics. That all might seem obvious to us, but listen, Christian, as you leave this place, rejoice that it's obvious. Rejoice that it's part of your framework and part of your worldview because it makes all the difference in the world. There is not a decision that we make, there is not a day that we live that this theology does not penetrate what we do. This is the foundation that makes all the difference in the world for us because it is the foundation by which we enter the rest of God. We thank you, dear Father, for this instruction and reminder of your supremacy in our lives. And we thank you for it. We were nothing but dust till you breathed life into us. We thank you now for the life that we can live with passions aflame for you as our God and our Creator and our Savior.
and with passion for one another to love as we should love, to see your purposes accomplished on this earth. Thank you for the work that you've given us, and thank you, dear God, for the guidance that we find in the Word of God. May we follow it, may we live in light of it, may we search it out, and seek, dear God, I pray, for your people today to bend our lives to these truths, to ask ourselves the hard questions. Where have we cut God out? In what aspect of my life have I cut him out and to change? God, I pray that that be the result of this sermon specifically and of the broader teaching that continues to go forth from this church and within our homes. I pray for anyone here we're not aware, but we do pray there may be one who's not found their rest in Jesus Christ. I pray that you draw them to yourself today. In the name of our Savior.